1: Hi, everyone. I am Ikresh Gupta Chima, your host for the New Books Network in Gender Studies. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Jennifer Jill Fellows and Dr. Lisa Smith to talk about their book, Gender, Sex and Tech, an Intersectional Feminist Guide published by Women's Press in 2022. In this wonderful book, Dr. Fellows and Dr. Smith invite the readers to rethink the ways we approach and understand our relationships with everyday technologies and the way these technologies inform our, um, every dimension of our gendered lives. They mostly use the Canadian experience as an example here, but given the presence of similar technologies globally, these experiences and commentaries are relevant to people everywhere in the world. And with that, let's get started. Thank you so much for joining us today. Could you introduce yourselves to our audience?
0: Okay, I'll go first.
2: (laughs) Thanks for having me, Ikra. Um, I'm Jennifer Jill Fellows. I go by Jill, so you can call me Jill. I'm a philosophy instructor at Douglas College, and I work mostly in feminist epistemology and feminist philosophy of science. I'm also a 2022 podcasting fellow of the Mark Sanders Foundation for Public Philosophy, and I make academic podcasts but now I'm a guest, which is always really fun. So thank you for inviting me.
1: <laughs> thank you for joining me. Yeah, I thanks,
0: <laughs> thanks so much for inviting us onto this uh, podcast. You am grow- really excited to be here to talk with you today. My name is uh, Dr. Lisa Smith. Uh, and like Jill, please call me Lisa. I am a sociology instructor at Douglas College, and I work primarily in the areas of gender-based and sexual violence, Uh, and I also work in the fields of sexual and reproductive health with a focus on menstruation. I'm the coordinator of the Menstrual Cycle Research Group, and I have all kinds of things on the go in addition to being a parent, and I'm just really excited to be here today to talk about the book and doing so in digital space, which feels particularly apropos right? Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I am very excited to talk about this book. So uh, you share that you started working on the book while looking for text for one of your classes. Could you talk more about that class and the origin of that class in itself and then the origin of this book?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I can start with this one if that's okay. Um, yeah, so one of the things we, we talk about in the forward to the collection is actually a bit about space, right? And in particular, the space where we work, which is at Douglas College, and it's an interdisciplinary department. And there's a hallway where we all just kind of get together and have the opportunity to chat. And the course actually was an idea at the time that we started to conceive of the collection, because Jill and I were chatting about ideas for new courses that could be offered in the gender, sexualities and women's studies department. And we thought, hey, why is there not a course about technology, one that looks at reproductive health technologies, one that looks at computers, uh, one that looks at surveillance, one that looks at baby bottles? Uh, And yeah, we thought that was a great idea. Jill, I'll pass it over to you.
2: Yeah. Um, Yeah. So Lisa's office is just down the hall from mine. And this was 2019. So before everything went digital. And we were brainstorming this class. And we decided to get together in a coffee shop and kind of rough it out. Um, so we met like on this really rainy day in the fall and we roughed out what the class was going to look like, and it was going to be a class on gender, sex, and tech and look at the ways in which technologies can shape and influence our gendered experience of reality. And when we finished writing up the class that we were going to pitch to the gender sexualities and women's studies program, we looked at it and we were like, this isn't just a class. This could be a book. (laughs) So... We, we we did pitch it to the Gender Sexualities and Women's Studies program, and it does now exist as a class that I'm teaching this fall 2022 for the second time, which I'm very excited about. But we also pitched it to Canadian Scholars Women's Press, and we put out a call for other people working in this area and got just a, a bunch of wonderful essays. And so now we have this edited collection that I'm just so very excited about and so very excited to share with the world. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, definitely. I was, I mean, I started reading the book and, you know, like even the first example that you shared where, um, you know, we talk about the difficulties of hiding your pregnancy from... (laughs) This surveillance, it was so shocking and like at the same time amazing to me read through that. I actually, like, you know, instantly I like started talking with my friends in our like chat groups and I was like, oh, like have you ever thought about this before and all that? So this is a really, really interesting project. Um, one more thing that you do in the book is like you expand the term technology to include items that most of the time, we don't think of as technology. For example, uh, you include menstruation supplies and contraceptive pills in technology. What inspired this expansion and how does this affect or how do you hope it to affect the existing ways people think of technology? I'm going to throw
2: this to Lisa because yeah. I, I have things to say here. <laughs> I, yes, <do>. I know. <laughs> I feel like... <laughs> But Lisa is more grounded in the physical tech. I tend to do more
0: digital mm-hmm. stuff, so I'm going to throw it to her and then and then maybe yeah. I'll say some stuff after. <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this and I think this is one of the things that really drew me into the collection because I teach a course in surveillance and I really love teaching that class, but I really noticed through teaching that class that folks are just so drawn to this virtual world as kind of like the poster child for what technology is. And I think that's partly because what excites us about technology is always what's newest or freshest or most in front of our eyes, right? And everybody's talking, of course, about the meta right now, right? But we don't (laughs) think about how all of these technologies kind of just hover in our everyday world that are much more banal just because they've been there for so long. Right. And so I suppose I'm really drawn to trying to ground myself, but also my students, uh, those folks around me to taking those things not for granted. Right. Like those things that were um, wildly innovative at the time or that really had um, an impact maybe on how we experienced our our physical world, our mental world, everything Um, and definitely our gendered bodies. Um, The other thing I think that's important to think about is the extent to which what gets counted as technology is is very much a political and social process um, that has implications for how we perceive the value of those things um, and how we perceive what kinds of things are necessary and needed. And so for me, um, defining things as technologies is important um, insofar as it draws it into conversations about other kinds of access issues. So Um, people need access to the internet, but they also need access to menstrual supplies. And both of these things are uh, things that augment our capacity to manage our bodies, to engage with others. Um, But one is often counted as technology and one isn't. And I think that's not uh, just, you know, by happenstance. Um, But I'll pass it to Jill as well, because we had a lot of conversations about this, um, because as she knows, as a philosopher, uh, there's lots of folks that have also used even far broader definitions of technology than just physical tech.
2: Yeah. So I, I completely agree with Lisa that if we associate the word technology with just digital tech, that's quite limiting. And I think it leaves us with this picture that nobody pre 20th century had to deal with technological advancements, (laughs) because that's really when you know, the mid 20th century is when digital tech really took off and started affecting people's day to day lives. Um, And I think we know that's not true. So one reason to expand the definition of technology um, is to be able to make this much more interdisciplinary, right? So we can include anthropologists and archaeologists and historians and talk about technologies of the past and how the legacies of technologies of the past still influence our present lives. And one essay in the collection that I think is really interesting in taking a quite broad definition of technology is the essay by Jennifer Heights Thomas, where she looks at medical technologies Um, technologies of gender confirmation surgery and technologies of genital augmentation, both of which are medical, technological advancements. But she also talks about what's known as technologies of discourse, which is something that shows up in philosophy. Um, It shows up in other disciplines as well. And it's this idea that the way we talk about something is itself a technology because it is a technique for shaping our reality, right? Technologies are ways of... Intervening in and shaping and controlling our reality. And technologies of discourse do that as well, the way we talk about things. So she talks about technologies of medical discourse, specifically the discourse of what counts as authentic or what counts as natural when it comes to the human body, and how those technologies of discourse interact with medical technologies and who gets offered certain medical technologies, who has ready access and who doesn't have ready access to certain medical technologies. So broadening our understanding of the word technology beyond just digital tech, I think really helps us to focus on, as Lisa said, technological tools all around us that go unnoticed a lot of the time And that can include things like language, right? Um, As well as including things like uh, menstrual supplies, birth control pills, baby bottles, zines, right? That's another thing in the book, talking about the zines and e-zines. We have physical tech that then has kind of digital echoes. So we have a physical tech in the zine and we have digital tech in the e-zine. And what, what happens when we move mediums, when we're doing something that, ostensibly might look very similar or the same, but now we're doing it in a different technological medium. So from my perspective, even though I actually, a lot of my work is very grounded in digital tech, from my perspective, broadening this definition was like really necessary in order to engage with the history of the discourse about technologies, as well as just kind of shaking myself and hopefully the readers up to kind of recognize the way in which technologies are all around us and we don't often even notice. Like, I didn't really think about this chair I'm sitting on when I sat down on it, (laughs) but that would have been a huge technological innovation to humans of the past, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. That's very fascinating. And with that, it reminded me the start of your chapter where you talk about, you know, like how late 90th and 20th century women were computers And it's such a great hook because I read their sentence and instantly I was like, oh, you know, like I was flipping through pages because I was like, I want to know more about that, you know, like what does it mean and all that. Um, So it's really a very fascinating chapter. Um, And, you know, some of the examples that you quote in there, I think those are very common examples. One of my friends, whenever she felt lonely or alone, she used to talk to virtual assistants. And then, you know, like when you hang out together, she would talk about, you know, what she said to Siri and like how Siri responded. And, and other of my friends, male friends, he also would say offensive things to these virtual assistants just to see what their responses are. Um, And it's just like all so interesting to think about. Could you please talk more about your chapter and just kind of like elaborate on some of these ideas that you discussed in there?
2: yeah. So one thing I will say is, yeah, I think talking about my chapter comes fairly naturally from what we were talking about, because while I do work specifically in digital tech most of the time, when I was doing the research for my chapter, I did end up talking about the transition from physical to digital, right? So my chapter examines the gendering of virtual assistants, sometimes also known as digital assistants. And the, the three main players here are Siri, who you've mentioned, and Alexa and Google Assistant. And when they were launched, all of them were launched with female voices. Two of them, Siri and Alexa have female names. Um, Even now you can switch all of them to male voices now. That happened quite recently. Alexa just launched a male voice late last year, I believe. Um, But, all of them until quite recently started with female voices. I think Siri just made that change in the last little while that now you have to pick, it doesn't just default to female anymore. Um, So there was this strong association of digital assistants with femininity and they were feminized. They had female voices, female names. They also had patterns of speech that are commonly identified as feminine. So they would phrase things as, I think, or I'm not sure, kind of softening and making their claims sound less authoritative, which is a classically feminine style of speech. And so I was really interested in why this was happening. And I found, which you raised as the hook, this this interesting influences on the positioning of digital assistants as female. And one of them is, as you said, that in the 1940s, women were computers, right? So computer was a job, Um, And it was a job that was mostly, though not exclusively, but mostly done by women. Um, In fact, the time it took to process calculations. So you would have a bunch of computers in a room. These are people working with calculation devices, sometimes simple calculators or just working old school with pencil and paper um, to do these computational calculations that were necessary for largely the war effort in World War Two. And they would estimate how long a calculation took to do by calling it girl hours, <laughs> because everybody doing the calculations was women, which they referred to as girls, which is a whole other level of kind of <laughs> diminutiveness and, and kind of tells us about subordination and all that kind of stuff. So there's this is all really well documented, the history of computers as people by um, historian David Allen Greer. And so I thought, well, this is really interesting, because now we've kind of come full circle, right? We had women as computers, and now we have computers as women. And in addition, not only were women computers in the 1940s, but research done by Esperonim and her team also through the 20th century found that computers, even after they became digital, continued to be marketed in a very feminine way, um, computers were taking this kind of very feminized, very secretarial role, right? Um, so we have a positioning of computers that is very much feminized. And so it might seem pretty natural then for Silicon Valley to reach for this familiar stereotype when they come to create like Siri, <laughs> um, which is the earliest virtual assistant. But I didn't necessarily think that was the entire story. So I also reach, reached for a philosophical concept from feminist standpoint theory, um, which is a theory in epistemology, the study of knowledge. And the concept I reached for is the concept of epistemic advantage. So epistemic advantage basically hypothesizes that people in a marginalized position in society have access to unique forms of knowledge that the dominant group might not have. So this is the idea that women may understand men better than men understand women, or philosopher Charles Mills has written about this with, a, uh, with reference to the experience of Black Americans in the United States, that Black Americans often understand white culture better than even white Americans understand white culture. So We have a lot of white people saying there is nothing. <laughs> That is white culture, for example. Um, And so it's this idea that if you're in a marginalized position, you kind of have to know this stuff often for your survival and for your safety. And so you understand social structures and you have access to a whole bunch of knowledge about the dominant group. And the dominant group doesn't really know much about themselves or about you if you're the person who's marginalized. And so I thought, well... If virtual assistants then are signaling this kind of subordination and marginalization by pretending to be women, I mean, they're not pretending, they've been coded to be women. What does this do? And I argue in the chapter that I think this is another motivation for the feminization of digital assistants because they're mimicking a subordination and that places us, the user, in a position of dominance, right? Where we can do things like your friend in terms of sexually harassing them, and they don't really call us out on it. And in turn, by having this kind of false sense of security, false sense of power, we hand over so much information <laughs> to virtual assistants. And this goes back to my colleague Lisa's discussion on surveillance, right? Like we become comfortable with this surveillance because we feel like we're empowered, because we feel like they're assistance, they're submissive, they're subordinate. I mean they're not, <laughs> but but they've been coded, they've been, they've been programmed to kind of give us this sense of familiarity and sense of security. So that's what my chapter explores is kind of the place of digital assistance in Our reality right now, and why they've been positioned the way they have, and how that shapes our interactions with them.
1: That was a lot. (laughs) No, I mean, it was all fascinating. So, (laughs) thank you for sharing that with us. And that, you know, kind of like leads um, us to Lisa's chapter, which is titled Birth Control Pills, Baby Bottles, and Bikes Dancing on the Edge of Social Transformation. You have so many wonderful observations in this chapter. Also, I love how you bring these like seemingly incongruent, different items together to discuss them. Uh, could you please talk more about that? Like, what is it that you know, like contraceptive pills, bicycles, and baby bottles share? How are these I technologies? Mean, then?
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, Ikra, I have to tell you that part of this chapter is like a rebellion from my grad school days uh, when my supervisor, no doubt, told me many times, Lisa you can't do it all. Uh, And so for me, in part, this chapter was like, wait a minute, I can, Uh, or at least I'm going to try and I'm going to do three things all at once. And I actually sneak a couple extras in there. I don't know if you caught that. But I feel that this for me, this chapter was really an opportunity to, yeah, to take a look at things that are part of our everyday backdrop. That was really what motivated me but also to take a look at this notion of what we perceive as technology and progress, and particularly as it relates to gender. You know, I heard a Harvard professor, which always makes me think of fancy people, uh, talking a bit about her new book. Um, And it's not to trash this person's book. I'm sure it's very great. Uh, But she was talking on a radio show about how all of these technologies have come out and they've transformed women's lives. right? And that was the, the tagline. Um, And so she kind of looked throughout history at different kinds of technological innovations and how they had inevitably made things better for women. So I think at its core, we're very attracted to this narrative. It's, It's hopeful. And I don't want to say that we shouldn't be hopeful because I think that that is part of the core of what technology can do for us, right? Like there's no doubt in my mind that like the fact that we're having this conversation right now is so cool. The fact that I can like send my kids off to camp and be able to communicate with them is amazing. I know where they are. I can track them down with the Google location device, right? Like in some ways it's true. I, I'm attached and experienced that notion of progress. But I don't know, something about it makes me want to say, hey, Wait a minute. And I guess that's the sociologist in me, right? Like we love to just cause problems uh, and point out issues. And I think that's what I was trying to do with this chapter. But also one of the motivations for me in providing lots of examples was because I really didn't want it to end there. And that's one of the reasons I think, too, that we had this chapter first, because I'm hopeful that other people will pick up other things in their daily life and start to look into them and start to think about them differently. Um, but at its core, I definitely felt, and Jill and I both felt that something about the birth control pill had to be in there. And we actually received that comment numerous times as we were working on the collection. Um, and I received it many times, people saying, oh, you're writing a book about gender and technology. Obviously you're going to talk about the pill, right? And of course we don't even need to say birth control pill, at least not in Canada, because everybody knows what you're talking about when you're talking about the pill. And one of the things that we notice in terms of thinking about that technology is the ways that it occupies the popular imagination still today. And at least in Canada, and again, I can't speak to other parts of the world, but in Canada, the United States, and I would say probably a lot of parts of Europe as well. uh, There's celebrations of the anniversary of the pill in newspapers and things like this. Uh, And typically the tagline is, well... The pill has revolutionized women's lives and made things better, right? And of course, within those stories, there's always some references to uh, what I would categorize as the controversial uh, histories of the pill. But there's always this notion that, okay, actually, no, this was worked out. And I suppose what I want us to see or what I want us to think about when we're approaching these technologies is not to see it in that way. We don't have to, right? We don't have to say... Uh, because we appreciate some of the advantages that the pill has brought for us, that it doesn't bring many complications with it, and further, that there's not benefit in continuing to pose questions about how those technologies occupy our lives. Uh, So at least for me, that was why the pill had to be in there. And then in other moments, uh, as I started to explore the connections between these other devices that I chose to look at, right, so baby bottles and bikes, Uh, I started to see similarities in in ways, but also differences. And so that's why I try to tease out in the chapter. I feel like baby bottles is one that people wouldn't necessarily expect to be there. And that I suppose is partly why I wanted it to be in there. But as I talk about in the chapter, I heard about uh, this dig site where um, this uh, archeologist found these ancient uh, infant feeding vessels. Um, And myself, uh, I was really fascinated by this and I kind of got trapped into that myth of progress myself. So I started like, as I was hearing the story, thinking like, oh, wow, this must have transformed gender relations and done all these things. And it was actually not until I talked to my colleague who does work in this area kind of adjacent um, that I had to give myself a check and be like, actually, we don't fully know because we don't live in that space. And further, like any technology, there are multiple ways that it fits into human life uh, and experience. Um, And the last thing I'll say is about bikes, because I think that's one, like I say in the chapter that some people might expect and some people won't. So if the pill is expected, Baby bottles are maybe unexpected. Bikes, I think are probably one that people, some people might be in the know. Uh, But definitely there's uh, similar kinds of discussions, uh, early days in cycling, about the capacity of this technology to uh, transform women's lives. Uh, But also on the flip side, people limiting access to it because it was perceived as potentially causing all kinds of issues. Um, And so in the contemporary context, the way these histories are remembered about cycling is um, often very one dimensional in terms of popular space. And so one of the things I invite readers to do is to take a look at some of the ways that the history of cycling is talked about, and in particular, who's excluded, right? So we don't see a lot of discussion, for example, about um, the early days of Black cyclists in uh, the United States, for example. Um, even though some historians are doing work in this area, really good work. And this in many ways echoes in the contemporary context of cycling, which still remains a very uh, white dominated space, at least in terms of representation. And what I wanted to end on is take a look at some of the groups that are seeking to transform that. So I'm really excited to learn about spaces where people have um, noticed a gap or noticed an issue and sought to create change through community. And in this case, I thought it was interesting that it ended on the use of social media as a way to pull people together through the organization Black Girls Do Bike. Um, so my hope with this chapter is that people seek out other technologies that they think are somewhat every day and that are worthy of a second look, Um, but also try to take a look at some of the ways that folks within their community spaces are either pushing back or seeking to change the way that those technologies are experienced, used, thought about, or even represented. Uh, So yeah, I'll end there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for um, a comprehensive response. And as you said, like these conversations still like, despite their long histories, they remain very relevant as means of, um, you know, just kind of like autonomy over women's bodies or mobility to just, you know, kind of like go in public spaces Um, and, um, you know, in Pakistan still like access to bicycles or just, you know, like the ability to just kind of like use this one technology and, access a public space and, like, just to be there is still very contentious along with, of course, like, contraceptive pills and baby bottles and all of these issues. So um, I think this chapter not only shows the possibility of, like, talking about, you know, like, any number of things if you, like, want to, um, I think it really kind of, like, shows, like, impressive skill in writing in that way, too, (laughs) by bringing these elements together. Um, So that's super cool. Can I jump in? Sorry. No, no, no. Sorry. Go ahead.
2: I also, one thing I really like about Lisa's chapter, and it's echoed in a lot of different chapters, is this idea that we often do have this promise of technology as progress, right? It's going to overcome all of the ills of the past. And, Yet a lot of our researchers found that if we aren't carefully examining what the ills of the past are, they just get reproduced online or they get reproduced in a new physical tech, um, either through the manner of development or um, the manner of use or the way people talk about it, the technology of discourse. And so, yeah, what we see is that quite often the the discriminations or the oppressions or the problematic aspects that were already there are not solved by the technology unless we are meaningfully looking at what these problems are and how they came to be and how they are sustained. Instead, what happens is that they're just kind of reproduced and amplified (laughs) by the technology. Um, And that came out in a number of different chapters. So when, yeah, when Lisa talks about the ways in which we preserve kind of a history of technology in a very, one-dimensional way like yay birth control pill um we see this again we kind of see an erasing of the problematic ways the pill was developed and put into use and this doesn't allow us to really use technology in a mindful way to reshape reality
0: Mm mm-hmm
1: Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think that your book does a great job of highlighting that with, you know, other menstruation technologies as well. Um, For example, where you talk about the cup and like the problems and um, issues that emerge when we talk about the access to that. And, you know, Um, and then there's the problem of cultural diversity there as well, like how it is perceived in different cultures. Um, Another thing that I really, really like about the book is that you provide enough materials for the readers to advance this discussion on their own if they want to. You provide them resources and you give them prompts for further um, thinking or just, you know, like these ideas that they can employ if they are using the book in another classroom, which I think people should because it is such a comprehensive book, you know. (laughs) It's like basically the material for a whole class. Um, So how did you decide to structure your book in such a way?
0: Hmm. I feel so. Okay. I have to give a shout out. I know I'm going to turn your question a little bit because I I really want to flag that there are, I think four undergraduate authors in the collection, um, which I think is really amazing. And for me, at least that was part of the motivation behind framing the collection in this way. Um, I, teach at an undergraduate institution and I do research in community and that's the kind of scholar that I really, scholarship sorry, I should say that I really care about. I want my work to be accessible. I want people to be able to read it and understand it. I don't want them to be like trying to figure out like what I'm trying to say by reading it you know 20 times. Not to say that uh, what we say is not complex, but I really wanted it to feel like something that my mom could pick up and she's actually reading it uh, currently two pages a day. (laughs) Um, And she, you know, like she was chatting with me about it yesterday and and she was, you know, asking all these questions about, about the things we were writing about. And to me, that really excites me. I feel like that's what scholarship should do. And especially scholarship that is um, trying to unpack technology, because that's a really important thing to do. I think that we should be encouraged to do that. Um, And I think we should be encouraged to do that together, um, but also by taking a good, hard look at ourselves and some of our own habits. So that was really something that Jill and I talked a lot about. And I think it's very uh, feminist as well, right, to encourage reflexivity um, in terms of one's own positionality, but also to be thinking in terms of how can uh, dialogue add to our understanding? Because I, I really feel like this collection would have been something very different if it just included uh, Jill and mine's voice. Um, but I'll pass it off to you, Jill.
2: Yeah. So like Lisa said, a lot of the structure of the book is, I think, as a result of the institution we both work at and the, and the kind of jobs that we do teaching undergraduate students. And I do think it's awesome, the book has undergraduate researchers, it has master's researchers, it has doctoral candidates, uh, it has postdoc, it has people very late career, and it's all side by side. And one thing that we really wanted to highlight was that you can be very accessible without losing intellectual rigor. And I'm fairly proud that we achieved that. (laughs) Um, Because I mean, I I don't want to say there isn't sometimes a place for technical terms and what is sometimes colloquially called jargon. Sometimes there is a need for that kind of stuff. But as one of my colleagues who's in the book, uh, Kira Thompson says, if it's worth saying, it's worth saying in plain language, (laughs) which isn't always possible. But I think it's surprising how often it is possible. And sometimes academics forget that a little bit. Um, So yeah, making it very accessible. And a lot of the activities and prompts and questions we have at the end of the book are things that we would do in our own classes right um or so i think lisa has the prompt of like doing a wikipedia edit-a-thon or we have discussions of like audit your own class to see if it's following femi- feminist ethics of care or make a zine or whatever <laughs> um and we have resources if, if people want to try and do that and so part of this is obviously to assist teachers and assist students in a classroom setting. But also I wanted the conversations to be able to extend beyond the book itself because the book cannot address everybody's perspectives and everybody's lived experiences with technology. We, we can't do that. Um, the book has limits, it could only be so big. <laughs> um, and so I really wanted to have prompts And activities that encourage people to keep going on this. And so one thing I did do that extends beyond the book is that the book also is complemented by a podcast where I interviewed everybody who contributed to the book. And that's so the book isn't open access, but the podcast is open access. Anybody can listen to it. Um, there are 16 episodes, so there are 14 chapters in the book, but, and then there are two additional researchers who originally were going to be part of the book, and then because of time commitments and other issues, they had to pull out, but they're part of the podcast, um, and I'm hoping that next summer I will even add to this by interviewing other people who are working on technologies from a gendered perspective, or from a feminist perspective. And so that's kind of my way of trying to extend beyond the book. And a lot of the prompts are and invites are other ways of extending beyond the book. So if your listeners want to check out, can I plug my podcast? Is that okay? That would be
1: amazing. Actually, I shared um, this book online when I was reading it. And then some of my professors from Pakistan reached out to me just like to ask about the book. And you know, it's difficult to like get a book shipped over there and it takes it a long time. So I'm so pleased to hear that you have a podcast where you interview all the contributors because that makes so much more.
2: It's way easier to share. Yeah. And And it also means we have the physical tech of the book and the digital tech of podcasting.
1: Right. Exactly. Definitely. So
2: the podcast is called gender, sex and tech, continuing the conversation and I can provide you a link if you want um, as well. So yeah, it's there. And the thing that I found really interesting was that there are different technologies of discourse in how you speak versus how you write. So some people would present information in the written form of the book in one way. And then when I was in conversation with them, it's the same argument, it's the same information, but it would come across differently. Um, And so I thought that that was worth thinking about. I don't know what I'm gonna do with that, but it's something that I found really interesting. So yeah, a lot of my goal was just to say like, let's keep this going beyond the book. And that's what a lot of the resources at the end of each chapter are about. Mm
1: Yeah, definitely. And I do think that this book needs another volume. You know, you need to write oh, yeah. more about it. Like I was like we need more of this. Like we need more of these conversations. I all of this is like so interesting and um so different. It just inspires these like completely innovative ways of thinking about these everyday objects that people most often don't even pay much attention to. Um now another question that I have is when you thought of putting this volume together and you know like had a call for chapters or you know anything of that sort did the submissions to that or you know the contributors did this expand the original idea that you had about the book or in way or did you change that after you know like you received multiple responses um
0: yeah I feel like oh, it was such a wonderful process I mean it's it's really cool when you do something like this with a colleague because you get to have this wonderful anticipation, but also these doubts, like, is anyone going to submit, right? I think that was my big fear. And so you finally get the first couple of submissions and you're like, okay, like maybe we're onto something. I feel like one of the biggest uh, transformations we went through was uh, the original title was uh, sex and tech exclamation point. The exclamation point was always there, quite controversial in the peer review. Uh, some people liked it, some people didn't. <laughs> But um, yeah, we, we ended up in, in the initial rounds, uh, making the change to gender, sex, and tech. And I think that was actually partly because of what was reflected in the submission. So people very naturally read it as sex and tech, but it, it was pretty clear that we needed to make that more explicit that we were looking at gender, sex, and tech. Yeah. And, um, I hadn't really um, thought about yeah. how much the title directs
2: people. <laughs> Which is dumb, I should have, but I hadn't really thought about it um, and a lot so a lot of people read that title and they thought that we were specifically interested in sexuality and sexual acts um which we're not not interested in, but it we wanted a broader scope. So one thing we had to think about was changing the title in order to really reflect what our goal was, which was to yeah, we have articles that talk about relationships and sexuality and, we have that stuff in the book but that we also wanted to talk about like menstruation and baby bottles and surveillance and all that kind of stuff um so we needed a different title and i think is there anything else that changed as the as they came in i mean one thing that i found really really interesting as the submissions came in is this isn't the first time i've worked in an interdisciplinary space But it's probably the first time I've taken on kind of an editor mentorship role in an interdisciplinary space. And I found that really interesting because in part, like my background is philosophy. And so I'd be reading some of these and I'd be like, well, I don't know what an autoethnography is. Like, That's an anthropology term. And I don't know what that is. And part of me is like, should I know what that is? And then another part of me would think, well, if I don't know what it is, probably some of our readers don't know what it is. And so it's okay for me to ask and to kind of prompt people like, so I found that actually coming from outside of most people's disciplines gave me this perspective where I could kind of prompt people that, okay, you need to explain this term or maybe you need to phrase this a bit differently because I don't know what's going on. (laughs) Um, So I found working in the interdisciplinary space and kind of this editor role to be really, really interesting in terms of just seeing how people in other disciplines approach things and trying to find a collaborative way to kind of bridge that disciplinary gap, I suppose.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And if I can add a a thought there, Um, I feel like the structure of the text was, was actually really essential. I don't think we could have called it an intersectional feminist guide if the collection didn't um look the way it did at the end and i feel that a lot of the work that the authors the contributors uh did was in in making that uh title a a reality uh because of the different ways that they were able to explore technology uh either through their own lived experience or equally through research and work that they're doing as scholars Uh, one of the chapters that really struck me when it came in was chris's Uh, so Chris Dietzel's chapter on uh, sexualized racism uh, in um, men who have sex with men dating apps. Uh, And I think that's a perfect example. Uh, This is something that wouldn't have been included in the collection if Jill and I were writing the text. And it's not just because maybe um, we don't use those apps, but it's also partly about um, the kinds of work and scholarship that Chris is doing. So I feel that... Uh, The collection and the way it looked at the end with all the contributions we did receive uh, really made for a rich and wonderful discussion. That said, uh, we received a lot of contributions. Some folks uh, were not in the final collection. But I also want to talk briefly about the impacts of the pandemic, um, which were huge. Right. And I know we're talking a lot about this in academia. Um, and I think that's another reason why the podcast is so important that, that Jill is carrying out, because I think that's one example of how we need to be thinking differently about scholarship and, and, and research. Um, because the pandemic made it really difficult for people to continue as, as usual and in particular to publish. So it strikes me that um, kind of this fluid model of publishing is something that I'd like to see more of. Um, and I think it especially benefits uh, early career scholars or um, scholars who have care responsibilities. All these types of uh, important things that keep the world running. I'll
2: also say, sorry, the the entire structure of the book, the so the the sections disrupt and connect. So there's a section on disrupting kind of old thoughts about technology, a section on how we use technology for connection, technology for sale, for surveillance, technology and the physical body. There's a section called bodies and then the reclaim section at the end. All of that did not exist in the original pitch at all. <laughs> all of that came directly from the submissions we got and seeing kind of, oh, these submissions are dealing with this in a very interesting. okay, we, if we put those submissions side by side, we get this really interesting discourse. So, yeah, Lisa and I had to kind of rethink the whole structure and narrative of the book once we had the submissions in front of us, which I think we knew we were going to have to do, but it was really cool. To do it, to put all 14 chapters together and sit down virtually with each other at that point, because yeah, pandemic, and talk about, okay, how are we going to organize this into a cohesive kind of structure for the book? Um, so, yeah, uh, that all was very, very different than the initial imagined pitch to the editor, to the publishers had been. And it was really rewarding to kind of work through the chapters that way and to put them in these different sections together, yeah.
1: Yeah, and it is very wonderfully done. That's why I was saying it makes such an amazing source to be used in a class because, you know, it's like basically like starting these conversations and then like taking them to their ultimate conclusion for the book, at least. And as you said, of course, these conversations, like they need to continue. So that will um, happen, I hope. (laughs) Uh, So my last question to you is how... Should readers, academics, and researchers approach this book? And you have addressed this like, you know, some already in your questions, but if you have like some final thoughts on like this is, you know, what we imagine and vision. Well, I
0: I gotta start, pause, and repeat. That's how we (laughs) (laughs) Sorry Jill, I cut you off there. No, I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We it was funny because we settled on that quite quickly. It was really fun writing with Jill because we did everything virtually and co-authored often together writing at the same time it was quite it was quite wild i really loved it but we we really settled i think quite quickly on that notion of starting pausing and repeat and i and we tried to echo that uh, definitely in the introduction and the conclusion to the text uh, and then also throughout um, and we also in many of our comments to authors we tried to encourage them to flesh out those kinds of concepts in in their chapters so I feel that that notion of starting, right, uh, engaging with something, taking a pause and then coming back to it again, maybe with a new set of eyes is something that I'd like readers to, to think about and consider. And even if they don't read the book, maybe when they pick up their cell phone. Yeah, just take a look at that thing. What's it doing yeah, in your no- life, right? <laughs> um, but Jill, what are your thoughts?
2: I also want to echo something that one of the contributors, Dr. Jamie Yard, said to me when I interviewed her. So I interviewed her for her chapter. And one thing that she said she was really hoping is that people would be playful. She So that we spend a lot of our lives being really, really serious, um, especially in academia, (laughs) and that we might take I mean, there are definitely very serious topics covered in this book. So I don't want to be flippant about the serious topics that are covered, but I do want to invite people to be a little playful with the way they want to explore their relationships with technologies um, to maybe find new ways of using technologies in ways that serve you better, that aren't necessarily the scripted discourse that you're being given through marketing or through whatever. So I I would really like to invite people to be curious and to be playful as they explore the various technologies that they reach for every day.
1: Thank you so much. Um, It's been so wonderful to talk to you about this book. I am Ikreshi Guftachima, your host for New Books Network. Now go get your copy or listen to the podcast for Gender, Sex, and Tech, an Intersectional Feminist Guide. Happy reading or happy listening. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you.